Welcome to the Procurement Show. Hello and welcome to the Procurement Show, the show that tackles the topics we all need to think about and sets out to explore the more interesting bits of procurement. I'm Jonathan O'Brien. And I'm Paul Philpot. My role here is to keep Jonathan on his toes. This week we're talking about sustainable procurement and why now is the time we all need to be making this part of what we do. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing. Enabling the future of procurement in organisations around the globe. Right, this theme is a theme that touches everyone, literally, because it connects to the globe. I've heard a lot of terminology being floated around. We've, of course, got the big term green. We've got CSR. Corporate Social Responsibility. ESG. So that's environmental, social and governance, about reporting systems that companies are using to show how sustainable they are. Okay, the circular economy. Yeah, this is quite a new thing. The idea that you're not just responsible for supplying things, but you're responsible for getting them back disposing of them and we've got to think about doing that sustainably and of course everyone uses the term sustainability so what is exactly sustainable procurement sustainability seems to be the kind of word that's being used to encapsulate all these things now people would argue many of the definitions mean slightly different things or they're used in different ways and that's probably true but we kind of need something to relate this to and sustainability is simply the ability to exist constantly. So we can look at that in terms of an organisation and we can think about the ability for the organisation to continue to exist. But if we're going to do that, we've got to think more than just making profit and doing what organisations have done. We've got to start thinking about the people it employs. We've got to start thinking about how that company impacts the people in the world. And we've also got to start thinking about the planet. Because what sustainability means is if we continue to do some of the things that we have been doing, we may not have those people. We may not have that planet. And ultimately, and this is where we get a bit apocalyptic here, there is a very real risk that the human race faces an extinction if we do not address some of the issues that are really getting quite urgent now. So this topic is certainly a topic of much conversation within corporates, certainly something they do like to press release about. But it seems to me there's quite a lot of all talk and no action. Is this the case? Is it something we should be worrying about? Well, I think all talk and no action, I think there's a lot of that right now. Mm -hmm. And I think also the other challenge is a lot of organisations haven't figured out how to do this especially when we talk about the supply side, which is what we're talking about now. But I think it's probably worth us thinking about some of the challenges that we're facing here, the kind of situation planet Earth. And there are three big things, huge things that we all need to be concerned with in the next year, 10 years, 30 years. Mm -hmm. The first is climate change. Now, we've known about this, we've talked about this, and the hard reality of climate change is very little is happening to address greenhouse gas emissions around the world. So annually, we as a human race release something like 51 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions each year, which is gradually warming the planet up. We are probably on target for something like a three degree increase in the Earth's temperature by 2050. And I'll explain more about that as we go through. But emissions are not only are they causing the Earth to heat, 
but it's also a major cause of air pollution around the world. So 91% of the world lives in places where air quality exceeds the World Health Organization limits right now and accounts for something like 42 billion deaths worldwide. So you start beginning to look at some of these statistics and we start to realize that actually this is pretty serious. So where do you think most of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from? I'm going to say, unfortunately, are we going to point the finger at that strange mix of industrial yet developing countries? Mm -hmm. So there's certainly some countries that we can point the finger at. China and Russia Mm -hmm. are big contributors. Most of the causes of greenhouse emissions are actually energy that is used in industry, particular things like iron and steel production, chemical production, also heating buildings and buildings not being particularly efficient. And then we get to things like transportation, cars, burning of fossil fuels in cars accounts for about 12% of the 51 billion tonnes, aviation about 1.9, shipping about 1.7. And in 2020, when we had the pandemic, we actually saw a huge drop in global emissions, which began to have a positive impact that shows we can do it. So Bill Gates has just put a book out called How to Avert a Climate Change Disaster. And he says that we have to get from 51 billion tonnes of greenhouse gases each year to zero to be able to avert the sort of disaster. And what that disaster looks like is more disasters, more droughts, more floods, more wildfires around the world, a billion more people in water scarce areas by 2050 and global food security under threat. Because this is not just something that affects developing countries, this is something that is going to affect our countries as well. We've also got the issues around the rainforest, you know, the classic story, trees being cut down everywhere. Yeah, and the world is a big interconnected system. So climate change is a big issue. Biodiversity loss, which is what we call this, is about the degree to which we're taking away the trees, the animals, the species. And all of that means the Earth's system stops working. It stops being able to do what it needs to do which then accelerates the problem. So some statistics for you, about one in four plant species face extinction. Probably one million of the world's eight million species of animals and plants are facing extinction. And we're losing the animals in the soils, we're losing insects, and we're losing species of plants. And a lot of this is down to deforestation. So cutting down trees to be able to then produce agricultural land for farm oil, for soya, or to be able to graze cattle for beef. And those are the things that are driving most of the loss of biodiversity. How much land do you think each year gets cut down to convert it into agricultural land? In terms of a percentage? Yeah. Or just, you know, name a country. I'm going to say it's probably the size of... England. Something the size of Italy. We lose something the size of Italy each year. And again, that has an impact. Every time we cut down a tree, we release CO2 into the atmosphere. And if we continue to cut down trees, then within 100 years, we're going to lose everything. That's the current projections. And that is displacing species, displacing animals. That's accelerating climate change, also causing other issues. So the pandemic that we are just beginning to come out of now, you could regard that as a once in a hundred year thing. 
But the research is suggesting that as we more and more invade the forests on the earth, there is an increased likelihood that a pandemic will be once every 10 years because we take species away, mm -hmm. other species become dominant. Then some of the viruses and the diseases that live within animals in remote parts of the world begin to come to the fore. They get connected with man more readily. And suddenly we're getting greater exposure to many of these things that have always been there. So biodiversity will cause more pandemics and will contribute to more food and global water security issues in the future. So all this is happening in order to supply us humans. Isn't it just a case that there's too many people? I think, well, there is too many people and it's not about to subside in any way. So in the past 50 years, human population has doubled. Okay. So human population of the world now, any idea what it is today? Uh... 5 billion? 7.7 .7 billion today. Ooh. Okay, by 2050, that's going to increase to 9.7 billion. Yeah, because actually you're looking at exponential growth, aren't you? Because well, it looks like it's exponential. It's very steep and the rate of growth is declining, which is good. But the number of people will continue to grow. Mm -hmm. It won't slow down to the end of the century. By the end of the century, 10.9 billion people on this planet that are using the Earth's resources mm. that this planet has to sustain. And the other issue there, of course, is overconsumption. So in the UK, we use about four times the resources that somebody in India uses. In right? terms of our everyday lives? Everyday lives, diet, and other forms of consumption. In the US, the figure is about nine times. Good grief. And the reality is, as the population expands, that there's not enough resources to sustain that level of demand around the world. If everybody in the world adopted the same diet as the US diet, we would need to convert the entire land of the planet to agricultural land and would still be 38% short. Right. If we adopted the same diet as New Zealanders have, we would need a second planet. So you'd be in a situation whereby the amount of land that's required in order to sustain the number of people living on the planet is more than the amount of land that is there for the number of people on the planet to actually be in. Right. And that's quite an apocalyptic view of situation planet Earth. And it took a while to go through that because there's a lot there. But the issue we have when you bring all these things together is we're now faced with a situation that's going to threaten the future of uh, food security and water security. And it will be the developing countries that suffer the most. It's going to give us more pandemics. It's going to give us more deaths from poor water quality, more disasters. And then we're going to have something like one billion climate migrants within the next 20 years moving from areas that become uninhabitable. That's going to change our supply chains. That's going to mean many of the suppliers that once we did business with are not quite the same as they once were. It's going to change the way supply chains work. It's going to increase volatility, especially with natural disasters. And it's going to change our attitude to how we need to be responsible for what is happening in this world. These figures are huge. I mean, this data is something that can't be ignored. And obviously, a lot of research has gone in to gather this information. So it's not as though we've only just discovered it. Yeah. Yet it seems that nobody's really doing anything about it. Yeah, and that's how it feels that there are things happening and opinion drives legislation that drives change. That's the key thing. So legislation in this area is on the way. There's lots of bits of new legislation around emissions that we will need to think about in the future. But not everybody's playing that game. So many countries of the world 
really aren't on board with this. So there are global efforts to try and do that. We've got COP26 happening this November, where some of these issues are discussed. And also, we're doing this from the southwest of England, Mm -hmm. very close to us. In June, we've got the G7 summit, where leaders of the world will come together and talk about many of these things. So it's on the agenda. The problem is it's slow. It's slow to get the legislation, to get the agreement, because a lot of people stand to lose if we're going to do this stuff. So the other thing that's driving it is there is this kind of groundswell of it's time to change. So we've seen a big, big movement against plastic Mm -hmm. in recent times. That's fantastic. And we've also seen people like Greta Thunberg, who has managed to become the voice of everybody in the planet that cares about this stuff. And that's kind of created this groundswell of opinion that seems to be beginning to get some traction. And now we need to think about this in terms of organizations, because this is on the agenda in the boardroom. It wasn't before 20 years ago. This was something that if somebody came into the boardroom and said, I think we need to think about sustainability, you were shown the door because it got in the way of Mm. business. Milton Friedman, the Economist Nobel Peace Prize winner, once said the business of business is business. He said there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game. So that's 1970. And that was kind of the view that drove many organizations. What he was actually saying is that the organization's shareholders need to decide what the organization does. Today, we need to think about shareholders more than just those people that own the business, but everybody else that has a stake in Mm. what a business does. And that actually means all of the people of the world who depend on the same resources. So our mindset here has changed. Organizations could choose to ignore this, but those are the organizations that probably don't have a future because the business case for doing this is one we can't ignore anymore. Well, it's the power of public opinion, isn't it? You've mentioned plastics as a classic example. People are changing what they buy, how they buy and where they buy from in order to reflect the views that they have personally. And at the end of the day, if organisations don't listen to that message, they're going to sell less of whatever old product it is that they're producing because it's no longer in vogue. It's no longer in fashion. This is a fashion thing as well as an ethical thing. Right. So you could say we need to do that because consumers won't like us if we don't. It will cause brand damage if we're the company that's exposed because there's child labor in our supply chains, for example. So that's a good reason to act. Compliance with legislation is a good reason to act, but also sustainable at an organization level, and sustainable procurement can bring value. It can create new brand advantage to that organization. So we're seeing the emergence of brands that their entire offering is based on sustainability. The clothing brand Patagonia, Mm -hmm. their entire ethos is around adding value, not necessarily generating profit. It's about How do we be a clothing company and add value? The Body Shop, one of the first companies to set a brand based on thinking about what happens in its supply chains. Innocent Drinks. There's an energy provider in the UK called Bulb who guarantee that all of the energy that you buy comes from renewable sources. So we're seeing this growth of brands where the competitive advantage comes by being sustainable. Not only that, 
We're also seeing that ESG investments, environmental social governance type investments, sustainable companies are performing better than the rest of the stock market. So the way investors are viewing this stuff is changing. So the business case is more than needing to do this. It provides opportunities. The Procurement Show. Exploring the more interesting bits about procurement. And now, the Procurement Fun Fact. This edition's exciting tale of preposterous procurement, bizarre buying, or simply saucy sourcing. In 2017, the Pentagon spent $28 million to license a camouflage pattern for use on Afghan National Army uniforms. The design was a specific combination of lush green colors and shapes carefully created so anyone wearing this design of camouflage or any vehicles that it was painted on would just disappear into the background of any forest or grassland. The problem, however, is that Afghanistan is 98% desert with precious few bright green things, apart from the Afghan National Army wearing their new camouflage. The Procurement Fun Fact. Contact us by email. Hello at theprocurementshow.com. Send us a tweet at Procurement Show or connect with us on LinkedIn. Search for The Procurement Show. Has the envelope containing all this messaging landed on the doorstep of the procurement office yet? What do you think will be the procurement person's role in all of this? Great question. In order to drive sustainability. So here's the percentage. If an organisation is going to drive sustainability, 60% of what they need to do happens in the supply chain. And this is one of the reasons why organisations have struggled, because most organizations now are doing something and they've set up internal schemes to think about emissions and waste and the things that are important. But it's just in the company. To really get to grips with this, we need to look at the supply chains. And that's the hardest bit, because the moment we start looking outside our organization, we have to be able to drive change in other organizations. So with our immediate suppliers, we can begin to do that because we have a contractual relationship with them. But then when we start looking many contractual steps up the supply chain, getting back to the original factory or plantation or raw material source, perhaps in another country where different laws apply, all of a sudden that becomes really, really difficult. And that's the bit the companies are struggling with because that's the hardest bit to sustainability. However, if we're going to do this, then we have to do it. So the role of procurement is to respond to what the organization is trying to do and figure out how can we make our supply chains, our suppliers and what we buy more sustainable. So is it going to be a case whereby they're going to need to do a bit of detective work? They're going to need to look under the hood of products and services a bit more and look at all the individual elements to make sure that they have a sustainable backstory? Yeah, and it is exactly that. Breaking it down, what do we buy? Who do we buy it from? And what's happening in our supply chain? So we've got to think about where are the risks? Mm -hmm. So that's the first bit. What are the things that we know could hurt us tomorrow? And then what we think about is what is the organization trying to achieve? So has the organization decided it wants to reduce its missions? It wants to ensure that there's no forced or child labor in its supply chains. What are the targets the organization has? Because from that, we can begin to look at what we buy, who we buy and our supply chains. And we can begin to think about, are there any things happening there that mean we can't meet these targets that the organization is setting? 
So the thing that we can do, we can do a thing called hotspot analysis. We can right. start looking on the supply side at hotspots of things we know where there are problems and seeing if we are connected with any of those. So there are three areas we look at there. We think about geographies. So we think about areas of the world where there are known issues or known things that happen and we want to make sure that we're not part of that. Mm -hmm. So we might look at if we're sourcing, say, cocoa beans from the Ivory Coast, where there have been forced labor issues. Also, Malaysia. Recently, there was an issue that was exposed in the US and across Europe where a glove manufacturer based in Malaysia, a company called Top Glove, was exposed by The Guardian and other journalistic organizations for forced labor. So a lot of the gloves that are being used in hospitals being made by people that hadn't been paid for four weeks and were having to work seven days, 12 hours a day, one day off and having their personal documents held. So an example of an everyday thing used in a supply chain that we all have part of that is associated with people being forced to work in a way that is not something that we would all accept. So we look at geographies. Also, things like beef that comes from Brazil, from Argentina. Some of those areas are responsible for massive deforestation. Mm -hmm. We look at the processes involved. Are we buying things that are part of mining or battery processing, dye manufacture? There's some certain processes out there that we know cause problems. So we can look at those things. And then finally, we look at the industry sector. We look at the products that we know often we will find problems. So cocoa, fish, beef, soya, palm oil, chemicals, garments, you know, those are the products we know that there are problems. So we start with hotspots. Mm -hmm. We look at the hotspots and then from there we can figure out what are the areas we need to begin to look at. And the key to this is only doing so much because we can't change the world. We can't do everything. We have to focus. So it's about picking five things mm. to work on, five things to start and be able to make a difference and change. Absolutely. And these hotspots provide you with an initial bit of focus, somewhere to get that story started. But OK, that sounds lovely. And everything that you said sounds really a bit, I don't know, perfect world scenario. You're going to have firms that actually aren't interested in this. They perhaps are looking for a short-term gain and they're all about making money. Yeah. Where do we go with that? Yeah, and those firms are going to be there. So the reality is legislation's on its way. Legislation mm -hmm. will drive change there. And we don't have any choice but to do this. It's just whether we get on and do it now or whether we wait for the legislation. So having spent a lot of time, having worked with big organisations all over the world to help them get their procurement right, the thing that I have kind of spotted is that actually, one, there's a will to want to do this, but the idea of sitting back and kind of doing nothing isn't what people are thinking about. It's more, how do we do this? So I think there are some companies that will take that view, but that will be a short-lived view because there is this groundswell and consumers are expecting brands to do more, and very soon they will be measured on whether they're doing that and it will be a fundamental part of complying with the legislation they have to comply with. Big organisations, right, they buy lots of small and big things, lots of components. The supply chain can be multi-layered and can cross the entire globe. You've already mentioned hotspots, but are there any other concepts and thoughts about how procurement can look at sustainable procurement as a global thing? Where do we properly start with this? Yeah, and you're right. So we do start the hotspots, but a lot of this is about understanding 
understanding what is happening in other parts of the world. So that's really hard. We can do an assessment remotely based on filling in questionnaires. And there's a lot of companies out there doing that, which gives you some idea. We can go and audit them. We can turn up and audit what they do. However, there's been many examples where companies have done really well in some sort of sustainability audit, but then they will be exposed for child labor because there is a corrupt general manager who has been pushing business out the back door and has a secret army of children sewing sequins on garments. Mm -hmm. You know, those examples have made the news. So even if you audit a supplier, it's really hard to be there and know 100% what they're doing. But possibly the thing that's going to change this is data and blockchain technology and new emerging technology to be able to have better clarity of what is happening in a supply chain or associated with lots of separate transactions. That technology will perhaps allow us to be able to see and track all of the individual elements that go to make something. So we begin to be able to trace it back to source. We begin to be able to understand how things come together. So when you go and you buy something, in theory, there should be the data available to see exactly where it's come from, who's worked on it, what was the animal, if an animal is involved, what were the original raw material plantations and sources. The ultimate is about data. We are nowhere on that. There are companies out there beginning to dabble in it, but it's a long way away. Mm -hmm. But that's how we will solve this. It's time to Ask Jonathan. And today's Ask Jonathan has been emailed in from Barcelona by Vanessa Maraglino. Jonathan, she says, mm -hmm. I have just started a new procurement role with a clothing manufacturer in Spain where we are beginning to adopt category management. You love category management. Mm -hmm. I have read your book, nice one, Vanessa, which is really helpful. However, please could you help me know where to start and which categories we should work on first? Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for buying my book as well. Okay, so the first stage is to be clear about what the categories are. And you may not know that, I don't know. But quite often organizations identify the categories and get it wrong. Remember that a category must be market facing. So for any area of spend, we need to be able to relate all of that spend to a marketplace to where there's a discrete number of suppliers. So check that they're market facing. Make sure you've got the right list of categories to start with. Then when you've done that, there may be some quick wins in there. There may be some things you can just get on and do, and you should do those. But really, the thing to do is to use an opportunity analysis. Now, you'll find this in the book, but essentially what you're doing is you're looking at how much we spend. You're looking at how difficult it's going to be to drive change internally. You're looking at the market difficulty, but you're also looking at what scope you think there is to be able to leverage some sort of price reduction or value improvement. And also think about the maturity, how much work has already been done on those categories. So consider those factors and that will allow you to identify the priorities. And then when you've done that, Pick five, just work on five and try and do category management for those five. Excellent. And if you have a question to ask Jonathan, here's how you get in touch. Ask Jonathan. Email your question to jonathan at theprocurementshow.com. You might be part of the next show. The Procurement Show. The latest thinking, the greatest insights. How can you prove 
And this is probably an evil question. How can you prove that the information that you're being given as part of that supply chain research is actually correct and accurate? Yeah, really hard to do. And this is the role of procurement to figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I work with a lot of companies trying to do that. And none of them can say with confidence, we've got this. Most of them are saying we are really working hard and we're working with the suppliers and we're getting close to them and we're incentivizing them, but we can't be certain. So it's the hardest thing in the world because this is not just about the fact that the factories, the plantations, the parts of the supply chain where bad stuff happens is remote. It's not just that. It's the fact that there are other incentives at play here because yeah. you're talking about people that want to make money from this. Politics, Politics, example. corruption. Yeah. And lack of enforcement of laws as well. Yeah. Also, I mean, do you not think that sometimes in the pursuit to become sustainable or to have a green image, we might be making some decisions that are perhaps a bit premature or we get roped into something? I'm trying to think of an example. Electric cars. Yeah. All right. Now, we all know they're inevitably going to be a good thing. But I've heard some shocking tales about what goes into making the batteries in an electric car. Yeah. When will we know and how will we know when we're making the right decisions? Yeah, and that's the risk, the sustainability illusion. And that is the risk that we charge off after things that we think are going to be beneficial. So some great examples of that. We say child labour is wrong, but what if that child labour is a 14-year-old girl who has to work to feed her family, otherwise they will be out on the streets. You know, we get to those sort of social dilemmas. But these are also cultural. And the electric cars is a great example. Electric cars are zero emissions when they're on the road. However, they're pretty substantial in terms of emissions that go into producing them. The energy that's required to produce them, we're talking about the products that make the batteries have to be mined they have to be processed through some quite nasty processing steps and they have to be moved all around the world. A lot of batteries get produced in one part of the world, shipped somewhere else and then shipped back again for further processing. Also, when they've been done, when they've expired, the right. afterlife process. And a lot of places aren't disposing stuff. So if you buy an electric car and those batteries don't get disposed, that car is not even slightly sustainable. Hmm. If they do, then it takes a third of the life of the car before you've offset the emissions that go in to produce it. And some reports suggest that you have to drive 70,000 miles, about 110,000 kilometers, before you've offset the negative impact. Now, that's a lot, but it's not that bad because... What electric cars are doing is they're improving air quality. We know that's a big deal. We said that earlier, 4.2 million deaths worldwide from poor air quality every single year. And also, we're getting better at this. So the production, the manufacturing will improve, and the way that we do this processing will improve. And ultimately, the production of electricity to power them will get better of that. So... It's the first step, but we do have to be careful that we don't chase the wrong things. The data picture is quite big, isn't it? You kind of have to look at so many different sources of information in order right. to have an overall picture. Yeah, and that's the key point. You have to look at the lifetime. So one of the key changes for procurement people yeah. is you're not buying a thing, you're not buying a service. You're thinking about the life of something that you're buying. We're used to doing that in terms of total cost of ownership, but now it's total impact of ownership. And you need to think about the entire life of that when you buy it and how you can provide for that. Talking of impact, okay, so if you want to have this new movement 
of sustainability. How can you make sure that your suppliers are on the same wavelength and how can you bring them along on this journey with you? Well, it's about working with them. Hopefully they will want to. Hopefully they're already doing it. If they're not, we have to question if they're the right supplier for us. We've also got to apply some of the standard procurement tools. We've got to look at the power we have with that relationship, how interested they are in our relationship. And that will determine what sort of leverage we have to drive change with them. But also, we might need to be prepared to change some suppliers. Even suppliers that we're locked into, we might need to think that source is no longer compatible with what we're trying to do. We need to find a way to diversify away from that supplier or change the specification of what we're buying to open up new suppliers. What about cross-boundary in between different territories? If you're working with a plantation in a country that has a completely different mindset, how can you start to influence what happens there? Because again, we're going back to that political issue. We're going back to that cultural issue. There are some really big things that we have to change. Yeah, and we can't wait for somebody else to drive that change because it's not going to happen quickly. We have to go to that original plantation, factory, raw material, and to develop a relationship. Now, remember, we probably won't have a contractual relationship there because the contractual relationship is with our original supplier. But what we can do is begin to open up discussions and the flow of information throughout the supply chain, try and broker the idea that we're going to work towards a more sustainable supply chain. And that literally means circumventing our immediate suppliers, ideally with their agreement, to go right back to source. We have to go there. So I'll give you an example here. So we talk about we buy a lot of tea, and tea is often something that the original tea that comes from the plantations is bought and traded in exchange rooms. So that kind of trading washes away where it's come from. And if the market is driving down price because of that process based on supply and demand, you can get a scenario where the farmers are only just getting enough for what they're doing. And maybe that's enough for that year's crop, but it's not enough to invest in the machinery they need or to properly pay the Mm -hmm. right number of people. So what some companies do is they establish relationships with the plantations that they want to buy from, and they agree to overbid in the exchange rooms on the basis that they will use that money to invest. So they create this extra value going back to them aside from the normal means that allows them to invest. And that's how they do it. So the only way we can really do this is to get right back to the source and really get close to them. I've also seen, I don't know whether this concept came about because of procurement or came about because of the power of the buyer, of the consumer, which we've already covered. Certification in you, you've got things like the fair trade movement, haven't you? Is that something that you just see on a chocolate bar? And believe me, I see them quite often. Is it just there or does that cascade down the whole supply chain? Primarily, those sorts of things end up right at the start of the supply chain. Again, the way that those things have come about is people have looked at the hotspots and said there is a real problem with the people that pick cocoa beans getting a fair wage or even fair conditions of employment. And somebody has said, this is an issue. We buy a lot of chocolate. We need to do something. So those have grown up because people have looked at the hotspots. And there are lots of different marks and certifications. 
There's a rug mark if you buy rugs, for example. There's sustainable timber marks. There's all of these things are out there designed for consumers. However, there's a lot of stuff out there that we buy at a lot of different levels. Mm. So organizations don't necessarily have these certifications for everything. It's only a fraction of the things that can be bought that can be certified in that way. It's changing. And if we don't have a certification that we can rely on, then we need to figure out for ourselves whether it's sustainable and fits with our goals. You've also got the impact, though, that people's views change. Quite recently, we've had a major world leader whose view wasn't really pro-saving the planet. Are we not risking a large sector of the community thinking it's just a fad? Could it just be a fad? Will it blow over in 10 years' time, not only in terms of practically, but in terms of opinion? I've been trying to do this for 20 years now. And 20 years ago, I talked to a lot of global businesses about corporate social responsibility, as we called it then, in the supply chain, sustainable procurement, uh -huh. as we call it now. And the response was, well, that's really lovely, but can you come and help us save some money? Come and help us do category management. Come and help us do supplier relationship management. Help us negotiate better. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. What I'm seeing now is those companies are saying, we really need sustainable procurement. So it's kind of gained that traction. I don't think it's a fad because you only have to look at situation planet Earth and we can ignore that, but it's going to come back and that's going to impact all of our lives within the next decade. And it's going to really, really hurt our children's lives as well because they're going to have to sort out all this mess. That stuff is real. The facts and the data do not lie. It's just our ability to be able to take that seriously and do something about it. And legislation will drive that. So no, it's not a fad. Companies will be forced to act if they don't. Is there a possibility that this could actually result in competitive advantage Definitely. for a firm? If it's not obvious, how can you go about making that competitive advantage work for you? Yeah, and that's the new thing. That's the new opportunity that businesses have. Some of those brands we talked about earlier, such as Patagonia and Innocent, and there are many others out there, that is the new basis on which to be able to put an offering out there because people are making choices with this in mind. They weren't 20 years ago. 20 years ago, only about 3% of the world's population really made decisions based on sustainable products. Now that figure is a lot higher and it's something that we are all thinking about to a greater or lesser extent. Takeaways, okay? Mm -hmm. I like takeaways in every sense of the word. And just to say when I do get a takeaway, I normally save the containers that they're delivered in and use it for my own food, for Me the too. freezer. Yep. See, it's a good thing. That's your own little sustainability movement. The circular economy, recycle, reuse. Yes, absolutely. Something else. But from this on. discussion now, Jonathan, yep. okay, three takeaways, yep. okay? A starter, a main and a dessert. Mm -hmm. of things that organisations could be doing right now in order to set them on their roadmap to sustainable procurement. Yeah, so the three takeaways from this. I think the first is believe it's real mm -hmm. because it's time to act, don't wait. The second is you've got to decide where to focus because otherwise, you know, this is immense and we really cannot solve all the problems of the world. So focus is key. And the third thing related to that is 
figure out the impacts and then pick five things. You know, what are the five things that we could do in terms of sustainable procurement that would begin to make a difference to the areas that we're focusing on? Excellent. Well, I've got to say a lot of useful information in this particular episode coming from you. When it comes to facts and figures, you are full of it. Thank you. You really are. I would like to actually say that this issue affects everyone. So if you're not necessarily in procurement yourself, or indeed you know somebody who's looking at green issues, sustainability in general, or indeed if they're studying business, then please feel free to share this podcast with them because there's definitely going to be some nuggets of information with what Jonathan's had to say that's really worth knowing about. You've been listening to The Procurement Show. Contact us by email, hello at theprocurementshow.com. Connect with us on LinkedIn, search for The Procurement Show, and on Twitter, at Procurement Show. Visit us at theprocurementshow.com. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organizations around the globe. Copyright Positive Purchasing, all rights reserved. Produced by Fresh Air Studios.